0: Heavenly Father, God, thank you so much for your word and for this book that brings life and brings meaning, and tells the story of who you are and who we are to you. Um, Right now, we ask, God, that this time of worship would be dedicated to you through our study, that you would turn our hearts and our minds to you, and that we'd be drawn closer to you um, and closer to one another as a result of our time together today. We offer it all up to you for your glory and your kingdom. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. All right, let's start in Deuteronomy chapter 1, and we'll be looking at verses 1 through 8. These are the words that Moses addressed to all Israel on the other side of the Jordan, in the wilderness, on the plain opposite Suf, between Paran and Tophel, Laban, Hazaroth, and Dizahab. It's 11 days from Horeb to Kadesh Barnea by the Mount Seir route. It was just in case you were wondering. It was in the 40th year on the first day of the 11th month that Moses spoke to the Israelites in accordance with the instructions that the Lord had given them for them. After he had defeated Sihon, king of the Amorites, who dwelt in Heshbon, and king Og of Bashan, who dwelt at Ashtaroth and Edrai So he just finished some battles on the other side of the Jordan in the land of Moab, Moses undertook to expound this teaching. And he said, the Lord, our God spoke to us at Horeb saying, you have stayed long enough at this mountain. Start out and make your way to the hill country of the Amorites and to all their neighbors in the Arava, the hill country, the Shvelah, the Negev, and the seacoast. The land of the Canaanites, the Canaanites, and and the Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. See, I place the land before you go and take possession of the land that I swore to your ancestors, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, and to give to them to give to give them, and to their descendants after them. And that's where we're going to end our reading for today. Well, let's just unpack the verses a little bit and talk about what's happening here. For those of us, maybe you've never really picked up the book of Deuteronomy, or we haven't picked it up in a very long time, or we just we dropped off as soon as they told us how many days it was going to take to get from one place to another place we'd never heard of before. So let's start talking. As Moses starts with like L.A. Devarim, like these are the Devarim, the words, and that's what this book is called in Hebrew, not Deuteronomy, but Devarim. Um, These are the words that Moses addressed to all of Israel. And here's all this stuff going on. It's the 40th year that Moses is talking about. What is, what do you mean 40th year? Well, they've been in the wilderness for 40 years and Moses is about to die. And so he's on the east side of the Jordan, and he is now going to, as he's sort of looking into the promised land um, on the east side, he doesn't get to enter in, and he's going to explain why in a little bit. Um, He doesn't get to enter in because of all that stuff, that, that just, you know, unseemly untoward, messy stuff that happened while we were in the wilderness. He struck a rock. God told him not to hit the rock. It was all a bad scene. So he doesn't get to get in, and he's standing on the side, and then as he's there looking into the land that he does not get to go into with a generation of people, he starts to give the longest sermon ever. And he is long-winded and people are going to sit there and they're going to listen, right? But Moses has some things that he needs to make sure are happening prior to his, you know, departure. He's going to live a good 120 years, but it's time for him to go. Um, And he needs to make sure that some people know some things, right? So he's providing context for everything that's happened thus far for the past 38 years to 40 years that he's going to be talking about. He's going to give a retrospective. He's going to give a summary of everything that's happened, how they got to this moment. In the book of Deuteronomy, he's also going to give some exhortations, right? Here's the things we need to pay attention to. He's going to re-explain the stipulation of the covenant. And he's going to give some preparations for the future. And we think of Moses, we often think of Moses in big heroic moments like this, right? Where he raises his staff, he separates the Red Sea, and he finds and leads the people through. We think of Moses, we think of his moments before Pharaoh, where he says, let my people go so that they may go and worship the Lord, right? And all of these things. But Moses is not just a prophet and a leader. What we find out in the book of Deuteronomy is that Moses is also a historian, And this is why it's going to be deeply important for him to note things like, it's 11 days from Horev to Kadesh Barnea by the Mount Seir route. Well, why tell us that it's an 11-day journey? Who cares? Because it wasn't supposed to take 40 years. The 40-year delay was not the plan, right? They were at the mountain. Horev is the word that Deuteronomy uses for Mount Sinai. So they're at Horeb, at Mount Sinai, and they're supposed to go into the land. So by immediately saying to everybody who's listening there as he's standing on the side of Mount Nebo looking in, hey, it was only supposed to take us 11 days, he's reminding the entire generation that's sitting there that they're in the midst of a giant do-over. That they were supposed to get here 40 years before but that God had had to give them a nice 40-year time out in the wilderness. And now in the midst of that new generation that's coming in, they are getting a do-over. So Moses is reminding the generation that's standing there, all these young'uns that are going to start to go in and follow Joshua and see the Jordan get stopped up, and they're going to cross into the land and have these battles and this great victory. He's reminding them, don't forget to remember that your parents lost this opportunity because of their disobedience. And much of Deuteronomy is going to be spent with Moses just trying to lay out some simple math for the generation to come. And the simple math is this. Mistrusting God plus disobedience is bad. And trusting God plus obedience, good right? These are the two things Moses wants everybody to know, that this is a very simple equation. You trust God and you obey, you will have life. It will be good for you. It will go well for you. But this is what happened when your parents and your grandparents didn't trust God. And when they disobeyed, it did not go well for them. It was only supposed to take 11 days, recalculating 40 years later. Now, Moses is not just a prophet and a leader and a historian, but he's also a teacher. And he really wants us to understand how these laws, how this covenant will work in our lives and what it means for us to live into them. So in verse 5, he says, On the other side of the Jordan in the land of Moab, Moses undertook to expound this teaching. And the word there for teaching is the word we often translate for the word law. It's the word Torah. Now, frequently when we've talked about the law or the Torah, we have an image of breaking the law almost immediately, right? It is the law to only go 25 miles per hour here. And if you are going 35, then you have broken the law and you get a ticket. So oftentimes when we think of all that God commands, we will talk about the law in this very punitive way. But the word Torah has much more meaning to just law. It really can mean primarily teaching or instruction. And the word Torah encompasses rules, yes, of civic and ritual procedure. It also encompasses prophetic teaching and reproof and moral exhortation and narrative. When today Jews refer to the first five books of our Bible as the Torah, if I asked you what is in the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, you would certainly say that it's not all Rules. It's not all laws, right? It's a story of creation. There's some interesting stuff going on with Joseph and some brothers that don't like him. Like, there's a whole bunch of stories that come into this context, and all of it has the encompassing definition of Torah. The Torah is taught, it's studied, it's pondered with the expectation that the learner's character and attitude and conduct will be shaped as a direct result that this is given to us to guide us. It has the same root as to sort of aim an arrow, to direct us. It's the instruction and the teaching to give us. So all of Israel's been gathered at Mount Sinai. God has given them these instructions, the Torah, the teachings. And it's then in that moment that the Lord our God speaks to us at Horeb saying, you've stayed long enough at the mountain. Because it's not our purpose to only stay in this mountaintop experience and just simply only study and listen to all of God's commands and all of God's instructions and teachings. It is also incumbent upon us, and this is God's next command, to take them and then go to start out and make your way to the hill country of the Amorites and to all their neighbors in the Erevah and the hill country of the Shvelah and the Negev and the seacoast and the land of the Canaanites and the Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river of Euphrates. God tells the Israelites, it's long enough now at this mountain. It's time to go and take hold of the land that I promised you. Now, this land is expansive. It goes all the way up, according to Deuteronomy, to the river Euphrates. It's well past, I mean, look where they are. It's not just what we imagine when we think of the boundaries of the nation-state of Israel today, the modern state. It is huge. And even under the time and period of Solomon who had the largest, most expansive kingdom that Israel would ever have, and he reaches all the way down towards the seaport um, in the Arava, just up near the wilderness of Paran, towards the Red Sea, and reaches up towards Lebanon. It never, ever gets to this boundary all the way up to the Euphrates. God promises a wide and expansive land. I mean, What God has told the Israelites to go and take hold of is huge for a very small people. God has given them the Torah, he's given them these instructions, and the Israelites were to enter the land immediately after receiving those instructions. There's a reason for this. In all of the instructions, and God will go over this again and again in Deuteronomy, he will say things like, you are a holy people you are set apart. You are to go and live distinctly and differently in this land. They're going to be a light to the Gentiles. They're going to carry the presence of God, which somehow is going to mysteriously and miraculously hover over the roof, over the lid of the ark. They're going to carry God's presence into the land that they're going into. And God is going to fight for them. God is going to walk into this land with them in their presence, and as they do so, then they have to keep hold of these instructions and teachings, not just to keep God happy, not just to follow the rules, but because they're going to be communicating and carrying the presence of God into the world. And the world will know who God is by the way the Israelites believe, by the, by the way they act. They'll get to know God and God's very character through their obedience to these commandments or not. And the same is true today, right? I mean, I think I was in college when I heard that phrasing of sort of like, you might be the only Bible somebody ever picks up and reads, right? Because I mean, like that sort of view where we would say like, you might be the only Jesus somebody ever meets. And maybe it sounds cliche, but it is actually a little bit true that for many of us, the expectation, at least from the part of the person that we're meeting, that if we're claiming to be a people of God, if we're claiming to be here a church that wants to express the life and the ethics and the values and the love of Jesus in this world, then we certainly need to be carrying God's presence out, the light, the spark that is of Jesus out into the world. That's the expectation Jesus has of us, and that's the expectation that God has also of the Israelites, that they will be a light unto the Gentiles. And that all of you, Jesus grabs right a whole you are the light of the world, right? A city on a hill cannot be hidden. That we go out and we shine that light. Um, many of you on Friday evening came and stood out front and welcomed the worshipers of Congregation Eitz Chaim, our Jewish brothers and sisters here, Friday evening to their service. And as we stood out front and welcomed over and over and over again, we'd have people, and many of them of an older generation, saying, thank you. Thank you for coming here. Thank you for welcoming us. Thank you for being here today. And at the end, Rabbi Chaim talked about why does he still have hope even when six months to the day after the worst attack on a synagogue ever in Pittsburgh, now we had another attack on a synagogue in Poway. How does he still have hope? What is it that he's giving, that's giving him hope? And he said, listen, it's not like it was in the Holocaust. Police were there and they stopped it. It didn't get stopped long ago. And he said, now we have, look, brothers and sisters, Christians who are standing here, standing outside and saying, it wasn't okay that we didn't feel safe in our synagogue and that we're not going to let that happen. We're going to stand here and make sure that you feel welcomed and that you're with, that we're with you. And he talked about how that light is pushing out into the world. And that's what gives him hope. You guys are part of that experience. You're part of that expression of the goodness of God, the goodness and the love of Jesus. When you take part in those actions, when you start to welcome, when you bring people in, you're representing our Messiah, our Lord and Savior. And that was the expectation too, that if the Israelites had just stayed at the mountain, that that message would have never gone out into the world. They had a job to do. As we've said before, it's not just freedom from the oppression of Egypt, but it's freedom for the goodness and the mission of God in this world. You've stayed long enough at this mountain. I feel like God has said those things to me in my own life. You've stayed long enough. It's time to get going. It's time to get up and get going and do the next thing that I've asked you to do but why is it so difficult to leave? Even when God is leading us to the promised land, when we, when we have an expectation that the thing in front of us is so good, it is so difficult to leave. I think there's a very easy answer for this. And my easy answer is like, God mountains are just pretty much greater than and better than battles and giants. Like I, It's difficult to leave because that God experience and being intimate with God and being at the mountain and being in community there, has anyone have like that retreat experience and you have that high and you don't want to leave. You don't want to go home. I remember having that experience first going to Israel, like unwilling to take my feet off the ground. And our tour leader saying, you know, it's time to go on the bus. We're on our way to the airport. And I said, yeah, I'm going to wait until the very last person has used the restroom so that my feet can stand on the soil for just a little bit longer because this feels like home and I don't think I'm ever coming back. And he said, well, you can remember you can always come back. And I said, yeah, right. I'm never back. No, I've, I lived there for a while, so it was pretty cool. But, but that feeling of not wanting to go back home, even though you have a job to do, right? God mountains are just better than battles and giants. And a lot, oftentimes, I think we intrinsically know That the thing that God is asking us to do, the promised land, does contain 70% desert. That it does contain giants and walled cities. That it contains battles and war. And that not all of us are going to make it. Let's just stay at the mountain. So we stay at the mountain because we are afraid. Because there's comfort in the known. And we've Bend to Mount Sinai, I would not actually want to stay at that mountain for long, extended periods of time. But if I was the only thing I knew, and the other thing behind me was Egypt, imprisonment, and oppression, and the thing in front of me was the unknown and the giants, then I might just stay at that mountain. Also, change is always hard. And transitions are never easy, ask any parent of a small child. Transitions are the worst right? You have to prep everybody. You, I mean, the, the number of mothers and fathers that I talk to that it takes them 15 minutes to get their kids buckled. The, the number of times I tell my own child to buckle, um, over and over and over again, we've actually started making it to like a turkey called buckle, buckle, buckle. Like we're trying to get her anything just to buckle. I, I must say, please buckle, please buckle. What? 50 to 60 times in a, 10-minute period. So if those transitions are never easy. We don't want to go. We don't want to do the next thing. And endings are hard. When the good thing that we've liked is ending, it is so difficult. And ending always implies grief. And particularly when the endings feel premature. When we've had to say goodbye to someone far too young. Endings are always hard, isn't it? When we have to say goodbye to that moment and move into the next one. And we try to avoid the ending as much as possible. Like maybe if I just sit here, maybe if I don't move, maybe if I, I do this, maybe if I do that, maybe I can avoid the pain of saying goodbye to this moment. But endings are inevitable and they're unavoidable. I wish I as a pastor could give you away way. To avoid the grief that comes with any, sometimes you want a thing to end, but oftentimes it's just difficult, painful. And, and beginnings are often scary, but they're also very often good. And we have to remember that a beginning can be a good thing, that it can be the beginning of a new chapter of life. So how do we move forward when we get really stuck and we can't leave the mountain? And God's like, you have stayed long enough at this mountain. It's time to get up and get going. The Israelites' disobedience to that cost them 40 years. In chapter 2, verse 3, God will actually say a very similar phrase. Okay, you've stayed long enough at this mountain. It's time to get going. And they do go then. But they've already lost the entrance to the promised land at that point. So how do we move on? How do we move forward? Well, I think one of the things that helps me is that we remember and we trust God. The word for remember in Hebrew has a connotation of not just thinking about something, but also action. Zahar, that that there's this moment where um, when God says, like, I looked upon Israel and I remembered. It's not like God went, oh, oh, yeah, I've got a whole bunch of Israelites down there. It's that God looked upon them and acted. So the remembering is to remember the things that God has done and then act upon them. And God is going to help Israel with this. See, in verse 8, he says, See, I place the land before you. Go and take possession of the land that I swore to your ancestors, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to give to them and to their descendants after them. That phrasing place, I place the land before you, literally in in Hebrews, I've given the land before you. Like I've given it to you. And that past tense given implies that the giving has already been complete. This is what God says to them, even when they're already at Mount Sinai, right? And they haven't gone into the land yet. I've given it to you. It's complete. It's actually a legal phrase that is used in ancient Near Eastern contracts for the transfer of property and tiles. Like the, a Hittite king to a vassal said, see, I gave you the Ziparshla, mountain land. Occupy it. I've given it to you. It's a past tense. It's, it's, that, it's a done deal. And so part of how we can move forward from the mountain is to remember that God has been faithful, right? That God fulfills God's promises, that God has been faithful to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to Sarah, to Rebecca, to Rachel, to Leah, right? That God is being faithful to the promises that God made to our ancestors. And even implied that it's not just like, I will do it, but I've already done it already given this to you. I'm using this phrasing that you'll understand from your cultural context. It's been given to you already. Now again, Moses is standing on the east side of the Jordan and he's looking in to the promised land. He's glancing over at the thing that he'll never participate in or take into. And this is that view from Mount Nebo. It's really beautiful. There's also a church up there. As Moses glimpses into the land and sees all of the well-watered plain of the Jordan and looks in and sees the thing that he's not going to get, I think he's also teaching us the next thing we should do when we get stuck at the mountain. We have to look to the future. We can't stay in that one moment. And we can't stay only in the place of the past of what we've been living. We look to what's to come, even if it's not for us. But it is for the people of God. Because we are narcissists here in America, um, and just as human beings, because we tend to read the text through the point of view of my life and my experiences, we'll often say things like, well, God hasn't done that for me, therefore God must not be faithful, or God must not be true. But the story here is that Moses believes that God is faithful and God can do it, even though Moses won't get to participate in it. He still can look to the future. When we look into that land, when we peer into the place where God's calling us, when we look to what is possible, what's not yet been written, what could come still, then we have the chance to believe that there's life after failure, that there's life after disobedience, and there's even life after death. And that there's a new beginning for the generation to come. I think many of us can get discouraged, and particularly those of us who've gone through periods of deconstruction of our faith. Or even we've walked away from the church at a point in time, or we're on where Spark has striven to be a bit on the edge of the inside. And so oftentimes we meet people who are either on their way out from church or on their way in. Right on the edge of the inside. And for many of us, as we've deconstructed and we've been in those places, just on the way out or on the way in, I think it's been a little bit disheartening to feel like the church that we see today, or we see represented today, in our very small slice of pie in America, some of us have felt like it's painful to look at. And that it's not the representation that we've understood to be the person of Jesus in our world. That it doesn't represent the life, the ethics, the the pursuit of justice that the care for the marginalized and the poor and the oppressed, that we, that we look at it and we think, but that's not what it's supposed to be. And we only look at the failures of it. We only look at the disobedience and we get disillusioned. And we forget that there is a generation coming. And even if we're not part of that generation, the marginalized, the poor, the oppressed, this is their church. And they will be the leaders of it. And so when we are in these moments where we don't want to move on, where we're stuck, where we've stayed too long in the mountain, where the transition of life is coming, I think we find ourselves um, needing some hope. And so we look to the future because we trust that the story of God will carry on. And we stand here today as an act of hope and as an act of resistance that we're not going to be defined by the failure or the disobedience or what has happened in the past, but we will be defined by what can come now in the future. And this is what I think, as Omer prayed so well, that many of us have mourned the, the passing, the sudden passing of Rachel Held Evans yesterday, 37 years old, a mother with two young kids, just too young, That many of us have showed up here today as that act of hope and resistance because she gave voice to the deconstruction for us. And she gave us hope. And she helped us to tell the stories. And that's what she did, didn't she? She told the stories. And this is what Moses is doing. Moses is reminding the people and he's telling the story once again of how God was faithful even when the people weren't even when they took a 40-year detour in the desert God was faithful. And it's in the storytelling that we actually learn about who God is. We learn about God's character. We see how many times God pursues Israel, forgives Israel, has grace for Israel invites Israel back in over and over and over again to the covenant over and over and over again. The Torah commentary, the JPS Torah commentary in the book of Deuteronomy says that religious belief in the Bible is based mostly on Israel's experience of God rather than on theological speculation. You'll note that the book of Deuteronomy is not saying, okay, here's all the things that you should discuss about God in terms of theology God is omnipotent, God is omniscient, God is, right? None of those omni words get used by Moses. It's that God was with us in the desert. And so instead, Moses tells the stories. And he wants the next generation to also tell the story. So he's passing it down to them. That's why there's this big, long-winded sermon on the top of Mount Nebo as Moses is looking in. He needs to know that we know what has happened all the way up to bring us to this moment and what needs to happen in order for us to walk into the next land, to see the next generation come in and take hold of God's promises. So Rachel Held Evans encourages and invites all of us to tell these stories too, and I think she did such a beautiful job of asking the questions, of wrestling, of questioning, of of embracing and holding the deep doubt. I read this week that one of her things that she would do when she would preach she would she she would say something along the lines of, "On the days when I believe this," I think that's that's very nice phrasing, right? On the days when I believe this you know what? I lost my best friend to cancer when she was 28 years old and we lost like three or four other people to cancer that year alone. It was brutal. I wish after now 25 years in ministry, having buried very, very young children to the very old, having walked all of those steps, having watched people harm one another in the name of Jesus, having watched all of that, I wish I had some really easy answers for you, but I just have questions. I don't have any helpful answer for why Rachel's life was taken so young for something that seems so ridiculous, right? Like flu and an infection. I don't, I don't have any answer that would ever satisfy why a three-year-old and a one-year-old are going to have to grow up without their mom. I don't have an answer for any of that. All I know is I really believe that when we tell the stories like, Jesus walked up, and he met Mary and Martha, and they wept, and they said, if only you had been here, Lazarus would not have died, and Jesus weeps too. My only comfort is that I believe that Jesus weeps too, and that the church is not, and the teachings of Jesus is not an inoculation to pain, but it's a place where we get to sit with the pain and not be alone, where we know that there's a God who lovingly and beautifully. And Isaiah 65 says that when he sees the new heaven and the new earth, God then says, and never again will an infant live but a few days. I'm like, yes, that's the verse I need in my Bible. I need to know that when I as a pastor stand next to a coffin that is way too small, and it should be illegal to make coffins that small, That when I stand there weeping, that Jesus is weeping too, and Jesus is also saying it's not okay. Never again in the world that is to come, never again will an infant live but a few days. That this is not okay. We live in this world that's broken, and we struggle with it, and we wrestle with it, and we have doubts. And I think that in all of the things that Moses is showing us in this passage, that it's we can't stay at that mountain anymore. We've got to move in. We've got to do the hard work. We've got to have the battle. We've got to engage. We've got to work out all of our faith with fear and trembling, as Paul exhorts us, as we do all of those things As we remember, as we look at God's faithfulness, as we look to the future, as we try to conquer our fear, and as we remember and tell our stories, we get to invite everybody else into this story too. So let's end with uh, one of Rachel Held Evans' beautiful quotes from her most recent book, Inspired. Jesus invites us into a story that is bigger than ourselves, bigger than our culture, bigger than even our imaginations. And yet we get to tell that story with the scandalous scandalous particularity of our particular moment and place and time. We are storytelling creatures because we are fashioned in the image of a storytelling God. And may we never neglect the gift of that. May we never lose our love for telling the tale. (laughs) Certainly she did not, right? Rachel did not lose her love for telling this story, this Jesus story, and inviting everybody else into it. And even in this ending, it's a new beginning. And even as she has been mourned on the New York Times and Washington Post and through all the social media this whole weekend, man, people have come to know a story that she wants to continue to tell that she gave her life telling to others, her whole life telling the story. So I want to invite all of us then, too, to continue to tell the stories. When was the last time you told the story of how God reached out and touched your life, how God met you on that mountain, and how God talked to you on that mountain, and how God changed you, how God changed me, how God reached into our lives, redirected us, put us on a path towards hope, towards some healing, towards some reconciliation, towards questions, towards doubt, but into a relationship with a creator that loves us and is faithful to God's promises. So tell the stories, tell the stories to yourself, remind yourself of that good God. Remind yourself of the stories that you want to tell. Tell them to the kids around you. There's a generation to come that will do greater and better things that will take this movement of Jesus into the next land, into that next season. Tell the stories. We have gifted storytellers in this community. If you've not yet told your story, tell it. Tell it to somebody this week. Tell yourself, remind yourself of how God has loved you. Tell the story of how Rachel told the stories. And it's in doing so that we step foot right back onto Mount Nebo with Moses and that generation. And we get to peer into the land and the future of God's faithfulness and God's leadership in those moments. We want to invite you all to come And relive again the story of communion. The story that our Lord, on the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took the bread, blessed and broke it. Giving it to the disciples saying, take and eat. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Remember. And likewise, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks and gave it to them saying, drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's remember and tell our story. All are welcome at the table. Thank you all for coming. We want to remind you that our prayer team is available if anyone would like prayer. And um, we are also um, go, we're available to pray with you up front or anything you would need anything for. We're happy that you're here. Please join us again for dinner. Tell your story to someone as we sit around. And may we become those that have hope to look into the future, to tell the story, to shine our light and love that Jesus has taught us so well. Find someone and tell the story of how Jesus has changed your life. Amen? Amen. All right. Go in peace. Serve the Lord.